Well, if you've tracked us on Facebook this week, you realize that at 5 o'clock last Sunday, we left to go to Houston, and we got back yesterday morning about 10 o'clock, drove through the night both times, uh, <clears throat> which is a great week. We had 12 people, 11 men, and uh, Cindy, Cindy uh, Murphy went with us as well, and we stayed at Heritage Park Baptist Church. And if ever I was going to join a Southern Baptist church, it would be that church right there because they had it going on. Uh, The pastor, the staff, they were uh, so in tune with their community. And it was obvious that God was like working through them and doing some incredible things. But they have just decided to embrace Hurricane Harvey and say, this is our ministry. And literally, we got there, and they gave us the run of the church, let us stay wherever we needed to stay. They had all the tools that we needed, even though we took our own. They had all the drywall, all the insulation, everything uh, was given to them. Like the Lord just provided for them, which was uh, simply amazing. So we ended up, ministering to this family who owned this home uh their parents had lived in this home and they had just died over the last year and they were getting ready to sell this home and it had gone through an insurance exchange and all that and at the time of the hurricane it was not insured and so we got there and this home was completely gutted it was down to uh the two by fours and uh our team went in there and drywalled sheetrock this house in four days. And uh, the family was overwhelmed that a group of people would come all the way from Indiana just to minister to them at no expense. And so they got their house sheetrocked, and the churches, uh, the churches is literally, they, they, they wait for groups. They called us the Calvary coming in and helping them because their people have been working for two months straight. And when they get like 10 homes done, they, they actually contract for mudders to come in and like do all 10 homes at one time. And so even these homes get mudded by the, the uh, that's finished drywall by the church. And then all they have left to do is to paint and to, to do flooring. So uh, be praying for Houston. There's a, there's a, we saw a lot... Uh, of stories throughout the week, but um, we also saw God's provision for them as well. And so uh, the gospel is alive and well down there, and I'm thankful for my friends Trent Henderson, who's the pastor at Heritage Park, and uh, their staff and their church. They, they literally took care of us during the week, so I'm thankful for that. Well, I'm glad you're here today. We're going to pick up at Luke chapter 12, which is where we We left off at the end of Luke chapter 11, obviously, last week. And uh, Jesus has still got his disciples hanging out with him, his 12. Plus, he's probably got about, uh, I would say, another hundred that are really intensely Jesus' disciples. You had these concentric circles where you had the followers of Jesus, you had the disciples of Jesus, then you had the 12. And then you had the three, which were were uh, Peter, James, and John. Those were like the three that he really invested in. And then he had his beloved, 
is one. We believe that it was John. John always writes the one that Jesus loved, but never names himself to be that one. But there's these concentric circles of disciples that followed Jesus around. And so we look at Luke chapter 12. It says, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands, thousands. So in those thousands, you've got those that are disciples, followers of Jesus, already believe that he is the Messiah. Because he's done these He's done these messianic miracles that the Jews that are living there in Israel said, if anybody does these miracles, then they have to be the Messiah because no one's ever done these miracles before. Well, Jesus has already done them. He's done all three of them. Yet, the country is divided because half the country doesn't believe he's the Messiah based upon what the leaders are saying, the Pharisees, the lawmakers, the ones who rule over the Jews. And those people believe them. But then Jesus has got his own followers, those that actually believe, mainly being Jews that are following him, but some Gentiles. It says, so that they were training, so that they were trampling on one another. It was just chaos. They're trying to get as close to Jesus as possible. He didn't have a microphone. I've always wondered what that was like for Jesus. He wasn't constantly doing this either. But he's talking and there's thousands of people and they can hear him. But they're having to like get close to hear him. And he began to say to his disciples first. And this is a beautiful thing. It's like, it's like I'm going to talk to the Hayward family here real quick. Even though there's thousands going on, I want, I want you guys to be disciples. I'm going to talk to you directly real quick. It's kind of what it was like. Even in the midst of thousands, he made the opportunity to speak directly to his disciples, which tells me this, is that Jesus knew that it was important to teach his disciples first. Focus on these men right here. Even though there's thousands that believe and don't believe that are listening. He says, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. (laughs) You guys, be careful of all them out there, is what he just said. He's like, those people out there, they're hypocrites. Now, I get this. Watch this. A lot of you have family, friends, or maybe even some of you said, I'll never go to church because they're a bunch of hypocrites. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing, yet they do another. And yet, even inside this group here, they could say that about this group right here. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, you should see the way that they behave during the week. (laughs) That's the truth, too. (laughs) You should see the way y'all behave. And me too, I'm part of that. So, you have to figure out what Jesus is actually talking about when he says that they're a bunch of hypocrites. And what I believe Jesus is talking about when he says they're full of hypocrisy is this, is they're concerned about what it looks like on the outside, but there's actually never a heart change. 
All we're concerned is how people see us on the outside, yet on the inside, nothing has ever changed. Now, I'm going to speak for myself for a second. My heart has been changed. The moment that I believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for my sins, his blood was poured out, my sins were forgiven. My sin, All my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. He was buried, he rose again, he sits with the Father, now the Holy Spirit lives within me. He's literally taken out my old sinful heart that I was born with, and he's put a new heart in me, and he's made me a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I am a new person. I am a new man. My heart has been changed, yet I still make bad choices. I still blow it. That doesn't make me a hypocrite. I'm a saint who sometimes sins. Don't classify me as a sinner. That's not my identity. My identity is that of Christ. I still sin. I still... I sin. I still do it. It's my choice. But don't classify me as a sinner. Because I'm a saint. Yeah, and occasionally I sin. It's a big deal up here. But these Pharisees, these Jews, all they were concerned about is the outside. What do I have to do to look good for God and for everybody else to see me. And there never, ever, ever was a heart change. That's why Jesus says, that's hypocrisy. Now, you saw the word leaven in there, and you know that our ministry's name is leavener. Let me explain that real quick. When we say leavener, we know that it's the change agent and a dough product that causes it to transform and rise while it's in a state of rest, which is what Jesus did for us. He transformed our lives because he caused us to rise up from the dead, and now we just rest in him. You see, leaven is really a neutral term, but you can refer and attach leaven to a certain cause, and then it becomes good or bad. In this instance, Jesus is using it as an evil term because the Pharisees are pure evil. You see, that whole leaven, I I totally believe as it grows, it grows, it infects those around us. And that's really what this group right here does. We realize that we've been raised by Jesus Christ. We've been transformed. We're resting in him. And you guys are infectious, just like we we took leaven to Houston this week. All the way down to the southern part of the United States. Leavener. It says in verse 2, There's nothing, nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Uh, my friend, I, li- I always listen to my friend Bob Warren as I go through this series, and, and Bob took this passage of Scripture and he attached it to sin. 
Whatever sin that you're doing, it's going to be made known. Now, he recorded that thing, I don't know how many years ago, 12 years ago, 13, 14 years ago, had no idea what today was going to be like. But he's talking about how if you do sins in private, at some point, it's going to come out into public light. Who knew that today, of all days, that we're living in a society where sins from the past 20, 15 years are now being made public? Right? I mean, we're seeing it every day. Oh, this person, this, their, their sins are like popping up left and right, left and right, left and right. It's hit Hollywood, it's hit politics, it's hit the church, it's hit businesses. And it continues to just pop up like popcorn. Who knew that it was said in red letters years ago? Your sins will find you out. And they will be shouted from the housetops. Whether it be the internet <laughs> or a microphone. I, I, I've almost... <laughs> I've all, even like yesterday, uh, I'm an Oklahoma fan. Uh, Baker Mayfield is ne- probably going to be the next Heisman Trophy winner here in a couple weeks. He was antagonized a little bit before the game playing against Kansas. During the middle of the game, he made an obscene gesture across the field. It was totally uncalled for. Shouldn't have done it. It's probably going to affect his career, but it was caught on camera. And immediately the commentators just blasted him. He's going to have a hard time getting the NFL with that attitude. The Heisman Trophy winner. And I want to start this new thing on on Twitter. It's called uh, CTPA. Hashtag CTPA. Countdown to public apology. (laughs) Because you know it's coming, right? When you blow it, when you blow it, there's going to be a countdown to somebody making a public apology. You can just count it down. And sure enough, after the game, Baker Mayfield made his public apology. I shouldn't have done what I did. I'm, a pas- I'm passionate about the game. But just to go to show you, your sins will find you out. Now, when I looked at this passage right here, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. I truly believe that as he's talking to his disciples right here, he's literally saying to them, you may be afraid to teach what I'm teaching you to these Pharisees, and therefore you say it quietly. I get that there's going to be backlash if you go against what these Pharisees say. But let me tell you, eventually, whatever you're teaching, it's going to come out. It's going to be shouted from the rooftops. It will be proclaimed. And you will have protection. You can look at it either way. And then he says in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. You see, he's saying to them right there, don't be afraid of these guys. They're the ones that are like, like, like killing people, literally killing people by the by." putting the correct behavior on them. That they can't live up to the expectations. 
It says, and, and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Ooh, wait. What? Just ca- caption that right there. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Now, if those were the only two verses that I had that talked about my God, I'd be scared to death. And I'd probably walk away and go, I don't want any part of that. But if you take those passages of Scripture and you keep them in context of who God really is, and in fact, if you you even read further into this thing, you go, okay, that makes sense. Literally, what he's saying right here is, don't fear the Pharisees. They're not the ones to be afraid of. In fact, the fear of God is actually the fear that conquers all other fears of man. Did you hear that? If you have a fear of God, everything else that you fear goes away. Think about it. The person who fears God fears nothing else. Verse 6, it says, aren't five, he, he totally changes right here. This is a, went from like this God that's going to destroy, and he was talking about destroying the Pharisees and the Jews that believed him. He says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. For some of you, that's not too difficult. But he says this, don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Those two passages that we just read are completely opposite of each other. If he's saying, if you disciples go do your thing, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. All week long, I fed this team of 12, which included me. But breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we ate well. And every time, these men and Cindy would come up to me and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dinner. Thank you for breakfast. Thank you for lunch. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'd say, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I even got to thank the ones that helped us financially make this trip possible. Some on the road, some right here in this very room. Thank you for taking care of us. But the real deal is, the Lord's the one that took care of us. He's the one that provided those meals. He's the one that fed us. Not me. Not the restaurants. Not the financial resources, but God alone. The real thanks is to the Father. Verse 8, he says, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others... See, that makes that other verse seem so logical right there. Like, if you're having to hide to talk about who I am in fear that there's going to be backlash, that makes sense right here. He says... 
And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be not be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me break that down for you real quick. We've already seen that the Pharisees have blasphemed the Spirit to his face. Do you remember that? If you go back when Jesus did the second messianic miracle that we've talked about, when he actually cast demons out of a mute that no Pharisee, no healer, anybody could ever do before, Jesus did this, and they looked at him and said, Whoa! You just did that from the spirit of Beelzebub, the devil. You just healed that man straight from the power of Satan himself. And Jesus looked at him and said, you've just blasphemed the spirit. We can't do that today in this church. They did it right there, looking in the face of God. You can speak out against God, you cannot believe in God, but it's not the same as what these Pharisees did right there in the face of Jesus. And it was at that point he said, all right, you, you, you people, you Jews have been cut off from hearing the truth. And it's at this point right here when he did that and they accused him of, working under the power of the evil one, that he began speaking in parables. The stories that he began to tell were hidden truths that he, again, met with his disciples. And he said, this is what I meant when I told this story. And we have it written in the scripture that you today, sitting right here with the Holy Spirit sitting inside of you, can read those stories. The explanation pretty much follows because he tells what he told the disciples and we can sit here and we can decipher the truth whereas those Pharisees and that Jewish nation couldn't understand a lick of it because they blasphemed the Spirit. He said, yeah, you can, you can speak out against God and you can even be forgiven for that. In other words... You speak out against God, and all of a sudden, you understand who Jesus is, and you believe you can be forgiven. In other words, I don't think there's anything in this room that you've done right here. Are you hearing this? I don't think there's anything that you've done in this room right here that hasn't been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross other than you not believing. That's a whole lot of stuff. There's nothing in this room bigger than what Jesus did on the cross. Other than unbelief. That's good news, people. Hello. Thank you, one. It says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You know what? You know who that applied to? 
that whole group of Jews that followed the Pharisees and, and believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. Guess what happened to that generation of Jews? That one generation of Jews, the Romans came in in 70 AD and destroyed all of them. 1.1 million Jews. Was Jesus telling the truth? Based upon what we know in history, yes, he was. You take the history books and you match it with what Jesus says here in red letters and it all makes sense. Verse 11, it says, Whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. I truly believe God's speaking through me right now just because I trust Him. I trust Him. Yeah, I'm prepared. I'm prepared. I went to Houston and everything else, but I, I've read, I've studied, I, I'm ready to go, but I truly believe that He's speaking through me. My friend Adrian's from Romania, and he, he struggles with English language, and everybody knows that. He knows that. And I asked him Friday night to say the prayer for our dinner. And he's like, oh, remember that? Ah. Or yeah, Adrian, say the prayer. One of the most beautiful prayers you ever hear in your life. Why? Because the Spirit spoke through him and gave him words to say. Don't tell me you can't pray. Trust the Spirit. Then he tells this parable of the, the rich fool, it says. It says, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I would have you raise your hand and say, Who, who's had to deal with inheritance and families, but I'd be afraid of the stories that we'd start in here. Everybody knows that that can be a disaster. And so this man says, I'm going to give Jesus a real disaster to answer right here. How's he going to answer this? And he said, friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, the thing was, was, was Jesus denying himself to be a judge? Or was he questioning who appointed him to be judge? That's the question, because you can read it two different ways. He's either saying, I'm not a judge. Don't make me a judge. Which we know that he's the king of kings, right? And a king judges. The question is, who appointed him? Not man. The father appointed him to be judge. If the father appointed him to be a judge, what's he going to be judge over? Lives. If man appoints him to be judge, what's he going to be a judge over? Stuff. Right? He's like, think about who appointed me to be the judge or the arbitrator. Do you think I'm really concerned about your stuff? Watch this. Let me take you on a little trip here. Let's go back. Here That'll go for like 20 seconds. Let it go. Uh, let me take you back on a journey right here because this is a beautiful thing. 
when you can take all 66 books and you can sew them together. But we're going to take you back to Exodus chapter 2. And Moses, remember the Israelites, the Jews, the same Jews that are saying he's not the Messiah here in the New Testament, are the same ones that are taken into captivity because of their sin by the Egyptians. And Moses comes along. Moses comes along and he's the appointed one to set the Jews free from the Egyptians. And I take you back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. Labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? <laughs> the man replied, Who made you a commander and judge over us? That's exactly what Jesus just said, right? Who appointed me arbitrator or judge? Same thing that this man said to Moses. Watch this. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. Somebody saw me kill that Egyptian. What he thought he did in secret, they were talking about it. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. For four years, he hid out. Moses was rejected as a leader of the Jewish people the first time he came. Guess what? The second time Moses came, he was received as the leader and led the Jews out of slavery by the Egyptians. Jesus took this passage that we have in Exodus chapter 2 and he just said, they're not going to believe that I'm a judge the first time I come, but the second time I come, they will. You take all 66 books, sew them together, and it sure makes a pretty picture. Verse 15, back in Luke chapter 12. He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in, in the abundance of his possessions. Now, he's saying this again to his disciples, Pharisees being in the background, and he's like knowing that the big deal for the Pharisees and the Jews is to say, how much ever stuff we have, that's how good we are with God. If I can get more stuff, I'm better off with God. If I can prove myself to be a wealthy, wealthy man physically, I'm strong with God. And now Jesus is just calling them out on the carpet and saying something totally different. It says, then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very a parable. That means that these people right up here were going to get to hear it and it was going to be explained to them, but everybody in the back, the Pharisees, weren't going to understand this story right here. It says, A rich man's land was very productive. 
he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. The man had more to do, had more to, he had more stuff than he knew what to do with. He says, then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, this man worked very, very hard. He's got more stuff than he knows what to do with. He's just going to sit back and relax. But God says, mm, no, you're done. And all that stuff that he worked for, just sitting there. Because he's not taking it with him. He says to him, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Trust me, you can work harder. You can work harder, but you have to know what your end purpose is for. You can store up your treasure here on earth, or you can store up your treasure in heaven. Now, watch this. I'm not saying that you can't have money. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, what is your plan for that? Is it to enrich the kingdom? Or is it to enrich you? People who are satisfied only with the things that money can buy are in great danger of losing the things that money cannot buy. This, this team that went with me to Houston finished this house on Friday. Uh, Keith and I were doing something else uh, that someday I'm going to unpack with you, but uh, it was an experience that he and I had uh, that was emotional for uh, actually for both of us, and I'll share that at some point when I'm able to. But we weren't there, and we actually went back Friday after the crew had finished and I'm sure that the crew looked at this, this house. And I promise you, I don't think there's a single one of us that sat there and said, look what I did or look what we did. I don't think that was the case. They all looked at it pretty honestly and said, wow, look at this. Look what God did this week for this family. Thanks for using us. I don't say that to be boastful or anything else. I just know the heart of the people that went with me. And they really weren't doing it to get anything out of it themselves, although we did get a lot out of it. But that house was really just for the glory of God. And, you know, when I say us, those 12, I even mean all of us. Because I know that there was a ton of people back here praying for us. And I know that there are people that have financially con contributed to that trip. And so when I say the 12, really I'm talking about this whole group right here. Thank you. Now, uh, I teased you this morning. 
about the cure for anxiety. Let me do that and we'll stop. This was the subtitle in my Bible. It's not the Bible. It's the subtitle, the cure for anxiety. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, or what you will wear. That's the same thing that he basically said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He says, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat, what you should drink, and don't be anxious. Ha, ha. Red letters that says don't be anxious. Hey, don't be anxious. You people out there, don't be anxious. And quit your worrying. Just like that. It says, For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's totally opposite of what the Pharisees were teaching. He says, make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old and inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will will be also. That's the cure for anxiety? Wait a second. That's the cure? Yeah, he just says, quit worrying about stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Thanksgiving week. Getchels, you got 30 people at your house tonight. I'm sure they're not worried about stuff tonight. Esther, you're not worried, are you? Where is she? You back in childcare? Are you hiding? <laughs> Calling her out? Don't worry about holidays. Don't worry about Christmas. Don't worry about stuff. Really, seriously. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great holiday? If you didn't have to worry about that stuff? Look, that's what's causing the problem. Stuff. I'm telling you, it's the stuff. What's important? What's important? I had more fun just hanging out with these people this week than I've had in a long time. There's grunt work. There was some arguing. There was some complaining. There was some whining. There was. But in Adrian's prayer, he said it was the best week of his life. Why? 
because he wouldn't have to worry about anything. Everything was taken care of. He had a place to sleep, had showers, had food, had friends, talking about Jesus. Stuff is stuff. Worrying about stuff is just another ploy to steal your joy. I get it. Some have already made bad decisions about stuff and worry is going to be a constant struggle, but it's only going to be for a season. Unless you continue to focus on stuff. I'm telling you right here, you want to have a great holiday? Slow it down. Make it simple. I know, I know, you got traditions, you got expectations. Okay, you're going to worry. That's what stuff does to us, right? That's what he's saying. I'll take care of you. <laughs> I realize your expectations are going to be busted. Kids are going to be disappointed. Grandparents, I get it. Stuff. We have to learn to trust God with what we've been given. That's it. Merry Christmas. God, would you teach us? Would you teach us? You have taught us. We just need to listen. In the midst of the systems and the traditions and the expectations, Lord, would you just allow us to trust you, to rest in you, to just relax. And may the things that you've given us, may we just bless others this Christmas. Take what we've got and uh, just be generous. Just be generous. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.